Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. At the, as a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star, then zero on your touchtone telephone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Cody, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, highlights from the 2022 American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO, annual meeting. And the theme is Advancing Equitable care, Cancer Care Through Innovation. And this is part one of a two-part series. And today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb and Mirati Therapeutics, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of this program today. Now, we have many participants on the call today. We have over 206 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Georgia, India, the Philippines, the United Kingdom. So it's really a global call as well. And um, we're just delighted that you're all on the call today. And we have um, five presenters today, each talking about a different type of cancer. And so um, it is really my great pleasure now to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Kamal Abu Hussein. Dr. Hussein is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Cooper Medical School, Rowan University, Adjunct Assistant Professor, MD Anderson Cancer Center, Department of Breast Medical Oncology. And Dr. Hussein will be addressing the purpose of ASCO, Advancing Equitable Care Through Innovation, and updates on the treatment of breast cancer presented at ASCO. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Hussein. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, for the nice presentation. Um, so ASCO um, has an annual meeting, which is one of the largest events in the oncology community, and that provides a nice venue for the healthcare professionals and scientists to present their cancer research uh, results to a global audience. And advancing equitable cancer care is a major focus of ASCO. So as we all are aware, there are significant disparities in access to cancer care between regions, economies, and populations. And now catastrophe or catastrophic events in general, just like uh, wars, epidemics, and natural disasters can compound these global disparities. Of course, what comes to mind right away is the COVID-19 pandemic, which unfortunately has killed at least 6 million people um, but it has disproportionately affected the poor or people of color, people who belong to lower and middle income regions, and of course, people with serious underlying health conditions like cancer. This category of patients were the most susceptible. There was a study that showed that black patients with cancer were twice as likely to get COVID compared to the white patients and Hispanic patients were even five times more likely to get COVID. There has been a lot of work led by ASCO to address structural discrimination and a strong push to include underrepresented populations in clinical trials. So there are a lot of barriers that could lead to lack of enrollment 
of minority populations in clinical trials. And I'm just going to list some of the common ones. So maybe there is limited physician communication with their patients. Maybe there is physician bias. There is sometimes lack of enough time and resources to discuss clinical trials. There's lack of knowledge regarding what trials are available in every center. And of course, there is lack of workforce diversity, which is a very essential point in building trust with patients, which is a core issue really. So if the patients aren't uh, fully trusting their treating providers, the likelihood of them enrolling in a clinical trial offered to them by that provider would be less. Um, one interesting survey that was published in the National Geographic in 2020 asked the question of, can you trust these institutions to do what is right for you and your community all or almost all the time? And they asked white, black, and Hispanic individuals. And when you look at the results, you can see that the level of trust was highest for white individuals, followed by Hispanic and then black individuals in regards to trust. Trust to whom? To doctors, local hospitals, local schools, the healthcare system, the police, and the courts. So clearly there is distrust there, and we need to do more to communicate better with every patient. Another issue is finances and gaps in coverage. So patients normally would incur costs for investigations and lab work while being on a clinical trial, and patients who have private insurance or Medicare would get that covered while the patients who are on Medicaid wouldn't get the same coverage. So ASCO has advocated for that. And thankfully in December of 2020, the law was passed where patients on Medicare, sorry, Medicaid um, would finally be able to get routine care cost coverage. Now, apart from the issues of minorities, when you look at the total number of patients um, in the oncology world, you'll see that about three to 5% only of the total number of patients are enrolling in clinical trials. The elderly and the rural populations continue to be particularly underrepresented in cancer treatment trials. So there was a study that looked at the percentage of oncologists who are based in a rural setting uh, and it showed that less than 10% of the oncologists working in the U.S. are based in a rural setting, while at least 20% of the population in the U.S. live in a rural setting. So even though the whole concept of virtual studies are not yet commonplace, but probably we should keep that in mind when designing a clinical trial to make it more accessible to folks who live in a rural setting overall. So now shifting gears and in regards to the breast cancer updates that were presented at ASCO 2022. Uh, first, I'm gonna focus on um, a few studies that looked at early stage cancer. There was an interesting abstract, uh, it's called the Lumina abstract. And this uh, looked at the possibility of safety, uh, sorry, uh, the safe omission of radiation therapy for the early stage breast cancer setting. So radiation reduces uh, the rate of local recurrence by about 67% in patients with breast cancer, but the downside could include fatigue, risk for second cancers, skin side effects, and overall the general inconvenience to patients. 
So in this abstract, they studied a well-behaved type of early-stage breast cancer, and the characteristics were it has to be positive for both estrogen and progesterone. It has to be an early grade, so grade one or two, relatively small in size, and having a low proliferation index, a marker called KI67. And all the patients on that trial were 55 years of age or older, and they were treated with endocrine therapy alone. So that is after their surgery, all of them received endocrine therapy alone. And they showed that the five-year local recurrence was only 2.3%, which is really a very small number. And from that trial, they concluded that potentially 30 to 40,000 patients with early-stage breast cancer in North America could be spared safely radiation therapy. So this is a very promising information that could allow this subset of patients to potentially forego radiation therapy. The other trial is the NRG-BR002. And uh, this is a trial that focused on a type of um, really um, metastatic breast cancer. It's called oligometastatic breast cancer. So this term refers to a metastatic breast cancer that presents with a single or a few detectable metastatic lesions. So in other words, we can think of it as uh, a good opposite to the word widely metastatic breast cancer. And in that study, the local therapies that um, they tested were either stereotactic body radiation, uh, radiotherapy and or surgical resection of this newly oligometastatic breast cancer. So they defined oligometastatic disease as a patient with breast cancer that has less than or equal to four metastatic sites. Of course, every patient was offered standard of care systemic therapy. And when they looked at the utility of using those local therapies in addition to standard systemic therapy, there was no significant difference between the two arms. So that concluded that Currently, at this point, we don't have any evidence for the use of local therapy in the metastatic setting, and still the main cornerstone of treatment should be systemic therapy. And of course, the word systemic therapy would encompass a big number of options, including chemotherapy, hormonal therapy, immunotherapy, and others. Now, shifting gears and talking about other very important trials in the metastatic setting, um, I would like to start first by um, a trial that was presented in the plenary session, the Destiny Breast 04. Now, this is a trial that used a drug called trastuzumab deroxtecan, um, or we can also refer to it as D, uh, TDXD. Now, this is an antibody drug conjugate. Uh, that means um, really a smart design type molecule that is formed of three different parts. The first part is an antibody that is targeted at a certain receptor on the surface of the cancer cell that is linked to a bowl of chemotherapy. And then there is a linker that links those two parts together. So once the antibody binds to the receptor on the surface of the cancer cell, it throws that chemotherapy bowl inside the cell leading to cell death from within. Now this is thought of as a, something that is useful for patients it is a focused type of therapy that targets mainly the cancer cells, 
with the hope that it decreases the level of toxicity um, because it's overall more concise, targeted, and hopefully sparing the normal cells. So in this trial, they compared this uh, drug, the TDXD, to treatment of physician choice for the management of metastatic HER2 low breast cancer. A little bit of background. So we used to subdivide breast cancer into hormone receptor positive, which means it's positive for estrogen and progesterone, and HER2 positive, and another third subtype, which is negative for those three markers, called triple negative. And now we have this new entity in breast cancer that we're trying to define better. And up until recently, we used to test this HER2 protein, uh, and the testing would either tell you it is positive or negative based on our standard testing. But then we found out that there's this intermediate zone that was previously lumped with the HER2 negative, and now we refer to it as HER2 low. And for the patients on this trial with metastatic HER2 low disease, they must have received a prior one to two lines of chemotherapy in the metastatic setting. And if they were hormone receptor positive, they must have received some form of hormonal or endocrine-based therapy. The chemotherapies that they used in this trial included some of the commonly used agents in practice. Examples, capecitabine, eribulin, gemcitabine, paclitaxel, and albumin-bound paclitaxel. This was a really important trial, which showed that there is a 50% improvement in the ability to continue uh, to stay on that therapy without evidence of tumor progression compared to the standard of care therapy. And the second endpoint uh, was looking at overall survival for patients. And when they compared both arms, again, it favored the TDXD over chemotherapy with a significant improvement in survival, at least six months improvement from the standard of care, confirming that this drug works well in the HER2 low metastatic breast cancer setting. Whether you are hormone receptor positive or hormone receptor negative, the benefit was seen in both um, sides, really. So this was an important and practice-changing clinical trial that has really changed the way that we look and treat this type of breast cancer. Now, when it comes to adverse events, the most common ones were nausea, fatigue, vomiting, and a low white blood cell count. There was also a very small percentage of patients that ended up developing something called interstitial lung disease, which means inflammation of the lung tissue, and it could present with no or subtle symptoms, and it go all the way up to cough or significant shortness of breath. So we try to pay very close attention to any new pulmonary symptoms while our patients are being treated with that agent. The other important trial was the TROPICS-2 trial. And this was another trial that looked at the utility of using another antibody drug conjugate. This time it's a different one. It is um, called satituzumab govitikan, uh, also referred to as Trudelvi. Uh, it's used this for the treatment of metastatic hormone receptor positive breast cancer. Now this drug already has an FDA approval in the treatment of metastatic triple negative breast cancer. But this trial looked at a different population, so metastatic hormone receptor positive patients that have received at least one line of hormonal therapy 
and at least two, but no more than four lines of chemotherapy. And it randomized them to either receiving this new drug, the antibody drug conjugate sasituzumab, or treatment of physician choice with a single agent chemotherapy, very similar to the prior study that we talked about. So overall, they looked at a very heavily pretreated patient population, and a lot of them had evidence of disease spread to their visceral organs. So things like the liver and lungs were involved with the breast cancer. The results showed an improvement in the progression-free survival, which is the length of time that the patient continues to be on the medications without the disease progressing. And that uh, benefit was shown in the sasituzumab arm compared to the chemotherapy arm. And the data wasn't mature yet to co comment on the overall survival benefit for the addition of this medication. Now, in terms of safety uh, for using this drug, the most common adverse events were in the form of low white blood cells, diarrhea, and fatigue. That's another uh, practice-changing clinical trial, which is an option for our patients who are heavily pretreated for the metastatic hormone receptor-positive breast cancer after receiving prior hormonal therapy and at least two lines of chemotherapy. A third very nice trial was the MAINTAIN trial. This is, um, um, I think it's, it's fair to give you a little bit of background. So before we discuss this trial, usually the treatment of metastatic hormone receptor positive breast cancer, the first line of therapy is usually a combination of some form of hormonal therapy in addition to a class of drugs called the CDK4-6 inhibitors. Now we do have uh, three different agents available in the market called palbocyclib, ribocyclib, and abemacyclib, which have been extremely efficient in controlling the disease and overall well-tolerated by the majority of our patients. Now, the problem arises when patients develop disease progression on such a combination. So we've been asking the question, can we continue using the CDK4-6 inhibitors and change the endocrine or the hormonal partner? And this trial was trying to address that question. So they included our typical patients who have metastatic hormone receptor positive breast cancer who have already progressed on the CDK4-6 inhibitor and endocrine therapy combination, and it randomized them to either taking one of the CDK4-6 inhibitors, namely ribocyclib, and switching the endocrine partner or putting them on placebo and switching the endocrine partner. And... Uh, in the initial uh, breakdown of patients, you'll see that the majority of patients used a type of CDK4-6 inhibitor called palbocyclib, also known in the market as Ibrands, and only a small number of patients used the other two agents. And the results showed an improvement in the study arm, and the benefit was maintained when they looked at it over time, over six months and over 12 months. Uh, and I think this is a rele relevant information clinically as we face this scenario almost with every patient. But maybe it is not practice changing yet. So thank you for listening, and I hope that this has helped a little in learning about some of the breast cancer updates presented at ASCO 2022. Uh, Dr. Mesner? Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Hussein. That was really a wonderful presentation, really stellar and outstanding. And I have to say that um, you've given a lot of information um, 
to our participants on both the purpose of ASCO, um, advances in equitable care through innovation, and also, of course, updates on the treatment of breast cancer presented at ASCO. So thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and our, our next speaker is Dr. Carolyn Runowitz. And Dr. Runowitz is Executive Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Florida International University, Herbert Wertheim College of Medicine. And Dr. Runowitz will be addressing updates on the treatment of ovarian cancer presented at ASCO and communicating with the healthcare team. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Runowitz. Thank you for including me in this conference call. I am honored to be among this prominent group of oncologists. I've included not only highlights from ASCO, but from other meetings, SGO, the Society of Gynecologic Oncology, and ESMO, the European counterpart. Um, these meetings demonstrated that much progress has been made in ovarian cancer research and the introduction of several new treatments which are very promising. And this has all been done through clinical trials. So I can't emphasize enough uh, to the listeners of this program that please check out clinical trials before um, you take standard therapy um, in this disease because we are really making great progress. The most dramatic standard of care alteration has been the rapid expansion of maintenance strategies in advanced ovarian cancer. The PRIMA trial demonstrated a benefit of PARP inhibitor maintenance in the overall population, but especially in those with BRCA mutations and or homologous recombination deficiency. And these are tests that can be done on your tumor, or they may be done on what we call the germ cell, um, which is uh, different than a somatic mutation in a tumor, but both are usually checked. Apollo 1 compared olaparib, a PARP inhibitor, and bevacizumab in antiangiogenesis to bevacizumab alone and demonstrated marked improvement in progression-free survival, specifically, again, in the homologous recombination deficient patients and in BRCA-positive mutation carriers with the combination, emphasizing, again, the importance of getting the tumor and germline testing. The SOLO3 trial did not show an overall survival difference to PARP inhibitors versus chemotherapy in patients with platinum senses ovarian cancer on maintenance therapy. And Athena phase three trial with maintenance recuperative demonstrated a benefit in progression-free survival independent of the homologous recombination deficiency status. So taken together, the current standard of care for women with BRCA mutations or homologous recombinant deficiency is the use of a PARP inhibitor with or without bevacizumab. Molecular characterization is extremely important in determining treatment for patients with ovarian cancer. There were also advances in frontline therapy. In the optimally debulked stage three and four, there were several trials. There was a phase three trial of paclitaxel and carbo with orgovimab um, versus placebo, which is an ongoing trial, and the data is very promising with improvement in median progression-free survival and overall survival. 
Uh, the PARP inhibitors should be used in the frontline setting in patients with BRCA mutation and in clear cell ovarian cancer, which was an abstract that was presented. Interestingly, for several years, intraperitoneal therapy has had its advocates. However, long-term follow-up of the GOG study, the gynecologic oncology group, did not show an advantage of the intraperitoneal approach as opposed to intravenous approach. There were also trials on neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and neoadjuvant is chemotherapy given up front prior to surgery. And the preliminary data suggested that adding PEMBRO in immunotherapy to neoadjuvant carboplatin paclitaxel may provide an advantage, but we need to um, await more mature data. Um, then there was exciting um, study on neoadjuvant therapy with a JAK1-2 um, inhibitor. And this was a phase two trial with a slight improvement in progression-free survival. So this class of drugs is, is really newly tested in ovarian cancer and looks promising. Secondary cytoreductive surgery, that is having the surgeon go back in after a response to chemotherapy and doing a secondary cytoreductive surgery, demonstrated that the benefit was largely derived in those undergoing a complete resection. Now that's a hard one as a surgeon. It's hard to know which patients are gonna get completely resected um, prospectively. But if they did have complete resection, there um, was a survival advantage However, the patients were highly pre-selected and had surgery at experienced surgical centers, which I think is an important observation. And patients want to obtain surgery with a gynecologic oncologist with, who has a significant surgical volume. In recurrent ovarian cancer and the platinum resistant, which is a difficult group to treat, there was an exciting uh, study out of Italy um, Relicorilant is a selective uh, glucocorticoid receptor modulator, which was given with a Braxine or NAB paclitaxel in a phase two study of heavily pretreated patients. The um, data was very encouraging, and a phase three study um, is planned. Uh, Pembrolizumab with um, anatinib, uh, a um, TKI. Uh, was also reported, uh, phase two study, uh, patients with um, ARID1A mutations had an improved survival. So the ARID1A may be a biomarker. So again, emphasizing the importance of understanding the tumor by having it um, tested for these biomarkers and genetic markers. There was a study also of a WE inhibitor um, and that was out of MD Anderson, and that also showed encouragement in combination with alaparib in patients with recurrent ovarian cancer who had progressed on a PARP inhibitor. Um, so this is an exciting drug that we want to um, see more studies. Um, weekly exabethalone and biweekly bevacizumab and platinum resistance and refractory uh, patients was described as an active regimen in a small study. 
Um, there is an inhibitor of ataxia telangiectasia and RAD3-related uh, protein kinase, which was reported um, in patients with platinum resistance. Um, and that, again, is preliminary data, but looks exciting. Um, and then there were several other trials, um, but in the interest of time, I think the importance is that there were many, many trials with new agents with exciting results. Uh, the final analysis of um, Mervituximab, which is similar to what you just heard from Dr. Hussain, this is sort of the Trojan horse concept where the drug is aimed at a folate receptor that gets the, the compound in and then the drug is released once it's in, very much like the Trojan horse. So it was very exciting to see so many abstracts for uh, re uh, platinum resistant uh, because we haven't seen this progress as we saw in the three meetings. And there are novel drugs in development. Um, there are preclinical data which suggests that a glutaminase inhibitor um, may resensitize tumors to drugs and biologics. So in summary, I strongly encourage all patients and specifically those with ovarian cancer to avail themselves of clinical trials before they receive too many standard therapies, which then prevents them from enrolling in the clinical trials. In my opinion, the advances and excitement at these meetings were drugs in development as noted in my remarks. There are regional, national, and international clinical trials. Uh, despite the restrictions imposed by COVID, patients enrolled in these clinical trials and really moved the science and treatment options in ovarian cancers. Clinical trials can be found at clinicaltrials.gov, and I strongly urge that you look at this site and strongly urge that you consider um, enrolling in clinical trials because this, these meetings really showed it made a difference. And that concludes my update in ovarian cancer. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Ronowitz. That was really outstanding, a stellar presentation and just a wonderful update for everybody from all the different meetings, including ASCO, um, on ovarian cancer. So um, really everyone got a lot of information from you, and, uh, and thank you. Thank you so much. And our next uh, speaker is Dr. Susan Sloven. Dr. Sloven is attending physician, genital urinary oncology service, Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center for Prostate and Urologic Disease, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, De Department of Medicine, Wall College of Cornell University. And Dr. Sloven will be presenting updates on the treatment of prostate cancer presented at ASCO, and will be addressing quality of life. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sloven. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. As always, it's a real pleasure to be on with our colleagues and also to present to the uh, audience. It's always great to be going to, uh, excuse me, ASCO, largely because we, frankly, we don't know where to run first. There's always something new, exciting, or updates uh, of prior, uh, really well-established uh, 
data on other novel drugs. So there's a lot going on when we go there. So it, believe me, if I, if I, I don't think uh, the number of days that we have is really sufficient to really get to all the meetings. So I like to break things down as themes. And there were really three themes that uh, was very prevalent at the meeting. One was, as uh, Dr. Hussein very briefly mentioned, diversity. The other was updates on prior trials, uh, some of which have already been FDA approved, but some new information that's in the post hoc analysis, as we like to say. And then there's the third, which is really about data mining. How do you go back into clinical trials and find some unique indications that have, were not initially noted during the trial, but when you have the opportunity to uh, sit down with a group of epidemiologists or other uh, specialists, you can actually find that you have more information that you gleaned from your clinical trial than you had originally anticipated. So when we talk about diversity, it's not about just black and white. It's about differences in racial, ethnic, socioeconomic, maybe even geographic uh, types of situations. And this has become very interesting because when we talk about diversity, we also try to make uh, our treatment available, even if it's standard of care, but we want it available to people who might be uh, outside of uh, large cities or they may be in rural areas or they may just have one doctor in, uh, where, in the city or town where they live and they may have to travel something on the order of 150 miles to seek care. So these are all aspects of patient care that we as physicians are really now more aware of than we have been before. So in, in integrated into this whole idea of diversity and data mining, uh, there's a, an idea about what we call biomarkers. And many of the biomarkers that we talk about can be either tissue-based or blood-based. And by blood-based, that means that we isolate cells. We look for specific markers that may be either predictive or prognostic of how a patient is going to respond to a treatment or how their disease is going to uh, ultimately uh, play out over time. In terms of just blood-based, we're looking at uh, entities called cell-free or tumor DNA, which is left over by either broken up cells, and we're using that to see if we can follow what happens to uh, the patient's cancer over time, particularly in response to therapy. So biomarkers are just various uh, entities depending on what you're looking for and what the actual modality, i.e. tissue-based or cellular-based, might uh, be. So what was particularly interesting was really a sort of a combination of, of both. Uh, this is uh, really a report of a um, sort of a data mining on a very large database. It's called the Promise Precision Medicine Database, and it's really an academic collaboration that compiles clinical and genomic or genetic data from men who have metastatic, castration-resistant prostate cancer. Uh, we have all these different types of databases that are, with, uh, that are unique to other malignancies, but this particular one is, is really quite a large one, and the patients who are being monitored do have either germline or somatic testing performed. Germline implies that there is something in the genetics of the patient that will make the cancer or uh, allow the cancer to be passed on 
to their children and grandchildren. It's a gene that may be abnormal but and is inherited. Whereas somatic testing really has to do with any abnormalities that we find that are unique to the tumor. So the idea behind this database was to take a look at non-Hispanic black men versus non-Hispanic white men who had actionable molecular data, meaning they just had some genomic information that was captured and was defined by certain criteria as to be important with regard to their ultimate uh, response to a certain class of drugs called PARP inhibitors, or they had uh, a very high what we call mutational burden, or they had recombinant deleterious changes in genes or microsatellite height. Whatever the changes were, they were deemed to be significant. The question really was, was there a difference in terms of how aggressive are we being in really working up men of color or non-Hispanic black versus non-Hispanic whites, are we doing appropriate genomic testing? Are we doing it in a timely fashion? Are we using it to guide our therapy? So what this really asks is, are we treating all patients the same? And that's a very, very important question. I think Dr. Hussein had mentioned earlier that sometimes there's a delay in diagnosis, getting patients in and trusting doctors. But at the same time, even if we do have patients in, are we not being as aggressive with one group of patients as we might be with the other? So this is really not a bias type of trial, it's a matter of having data and going through the data and seeing are there nuances that suggest that we could do a better job. 962 patients were actually evaluated, of whom 79% uh, were non-Hispanic white and about 21% were non-Hispanic black, so a much smaller number. Uh, they were equally matched for age. They were uh, equally matched for the number of prior treatments that they had, whether their disease was um, uh, castration sensitive or resistant or was widely metastatic. Now, you've got to keep in mind that when you broke everybody down, the actual numbers were that in the non-Hispanic white, there are about 760 patients, and in the non-Hispanic blacks, there's only 204, so it's a, you know, a third difference. And so when you start to look at the level of aggressiveness, it became very clear that when all was said and done, both non-Hispanic black and non-Hispanic white men were balanced equally in terms of whether they had Gleason 7 or intermediate-grade prostate cancer or high-grade Gleason 8, 9, or 10. Also noted was that the distribution and location of metastases were, same, were the same for, for both groups, so very well balanced in terms of the information available. They also looked at how often the patients were being tested, and it became very uh, noticeable that uh, there was a level of significance, meaning that among those patients who were tested or had their tumor tested, uh, there was really a little bit of a difference, and it's really quite minor looking at the tumor between the two groups. So whether you were black or white, uh, the, your tumors were, were tested. But if you wanted to know whether or not there was anything that would be passed on to your children, there was definitely a discordance between white and black, meaning there were more men who were white who had it done 
compared with black. If you look at the combination of both doing the somatic and the germline, it was still in favor of white. So when we look at all told populations, it seems that we are not looking as aggressively at the tumor and at the blood specimens in the minority uh, patients. If you were to determine whether or not they had tissue or liquid biopsies, there was a profound difference in favor of non-Hispanic whites over that of non-Hispanic blacks, uh, at least a difference of close to about 15 to 20% between the two groups. And that was just very interesting because the idea here is that there is an equality in terms of the evaluation uh, of the data. Uh, If you look at those patients who had genomic changes uh, with microsatellite high or anything that would refer you toward a different kind of treatment, there was definitely a difference favoring those uh, men of color compared with the white population. And there, you know, the the following, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I should just say to you is that there was definitely a difference if you looked in terms of uh, whether or not there would be a survival difference where the small survival difference favoring the non-Hispanic whites over the uh, non-Hispanic blacks largely based on just looking at how they responded to therapy. We do know that molecular testing is being done we do know that looking, uh, or, or once we know the information about these genomic profiles, that biomarker-directed therapy was less often used in the uh, non-Hispanic blacks. We also know that uh, there was a possible differential utilization of targeted therapy between the groups, and therefore we really will need to look at a larger number of men in order to address that question. But this was very telling because maybe we're just not doing the right job for our patients in getting as much information as we can to learn about their cancer. So just food for thought. Now, everybody I believe knows by now about the radioligand therapy, lutetium PSMA. This was approved uh, a few months ago uh, for men with castrate-resistant metastatic prostate cancer who uh, have failed a prior taxing regimen such as docetaxel or cabazitaxel. These men must have a PSMA PET scan that is positive. And this drug was FDA approved and can be used uh, once every six weeks for a total of six cycles. Uh, There was a tremendous amount of enthusiasm in favor of this new drug because of an improved overall survival and radiographic progression-free survival. And please keep in mind, just about every drug that's been FDA approved in prostate cancer has definitely shown a benefit. Now, what makes this very interesting is taking this standard of care therapy uh, was, uh, was the approach by the Australians to compare it with a standard of care, which is cabazitaxel, as many of you know, and to see whether giving a radioligand therapy would, in fact, be superior to cabazitaxel. In other words, if you're going to have to take treatment 
what would you take first? And so what they did, they had started this study about two or three years ago. They had very strict entry criteria such that the level of intensity or activity on the PSMA scan had to be at a certain level uh, that would allow the patients for, for entry on the trial. If there was an FDG PET scan, which is another type of imaging scan that we use that had any discordance between what was seen on that scan and the PSMA scan, then the patients could not go on the trial. So it was very, very strict criteria. Patients were either assigned going on lutetium treatment every six weeks for a total of six cycles or Cabazzi every three weeks for up to 10 cycles. And at the end of the day, the most important thing that they were looking at, in addition to the possibility of uh, improved uh, survival, it was really uh, looking at whether or not there really was a major benefit in using this radioligand therapy upfront as opposed to much later on. And very surprising to all of us, there was absolutely at the three-year mark no difference in overall survival, whether you had the lutetium PSMA first or you had the cabazitaxel first. The survival differences were negligible. 19.1 versus 19.6 months. So everybody was a little bit surprised. But where it did seem to be helpful is that if you use PSMA as a predictive biomarker, they actually found that the more active the lesion was that was seen on the PSMA scan, what we call an SUV or standardized uptake value, if it was greater than or equal to 10 versus being less than 10, there was definitely uh, a uh, trend towards seeing a significant PSA decline as well as a treatment uh, benefit. The authors did say that there were some limitations, uh, largely because it was sort of biased toward the the, uh, the lutetium arm. The overall survival endpoint was really not based on appropriate statistics, so it was very, very small. And uh, the toxicities were minimal, but the point is, which would you choose? And really, I think we spent hours and hours, and I was privileged to give a commentary on this. It's a reasonable treatment, but we really don't know how to strategize. Do you give one first, one second? Does it make a difference? Should you combine everything together? We just don't know. But certainly, one could feel perfectly comfortable having either treatment. In terms of analyzing patients who might benefit, there was another discussion about whether or not it made any difference for patients uh, who had uh, taken either androgen receptor signaling inhibitors such as enzalutamide or uh, abiraterone either first or along with the lutetium PSMA, and it didn't seem to really affect the performance of the test. But there definitely was a signal such that patients who received at least one or greater number of taxane regimens uh, prior to going on the lutetium seemed to have a bit more of a benefit. We don't know the long-term consequences. And then Lastly, 
looking at whether or not we can improve pre-existing therapy. So we have in the world of prostate taken two FDA-approved drugs that are of different classes, and we have tried to determine whether or not they can be beneficial in certain situations. A phase three trial called PROPEL actually looked at the benefit of combining Olaparib, which is a PARP inhibitor. It's a drug that's targeted against patients who have the BRCA uh, mutation, which is a heritable gene, along with abiraterone as a first-line treatment in metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, and they compared it against placebo. They did see benefit, even if you didn't have a, an alteration in the genomic uh, landscape, there seemed to definitely be a benefit. So what they were interested in learning is whether or not uh, this was acceptable in, in giving patients in terms of their toxicity. And what we know now is that giving these two drugs, each of which have their own side effects, it happens to be very manageable, has a very predictable uh, safety profile, and it will allow a majority of patients to derive clinical benefit by staying on treatment until such time that their disease decides to, to change. So now this could be considered, although not FDA approved, but it could be considered in unique situations as a first-line treatment for an unselected population of patients. So there's lots more highlights, but due to time constraints, I have to stop right now and thank everybody and turn it back to Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Slogan. That was really outstanding. Um, a stellar presentation, always um, just so really identifying the most key issues, both in terms of the populations that are served and also in terms of the treatment um, of prostate cancer. And, um, and so um, I think you've given uh, our participants quite a bit to think about and also to um, address with their healthcare team. So thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you. And um, our next speaker. Um, is Dr. Jeffrey Bruce, and Dr. Bruce is Edgar M. Halspian Professor of Neuro Neurological Surgery, Vice Chairman of Academic Affairs, New York Presbyterian Columbia University Medical Center, Director Bartoli Brain Tumor Research Laboratory, Co-Director Brain Tumor Center. And Dr. Bruce will be addressing updates on the treatment of brain cancer presented at ASCO and the importance of clinical trials. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Bruce. Thank you, uh, Carolyn. It's always a pleasure to be uh, working with your terrific organization. Um, <clears throat> you know, the recent ASCO meeting highlighted several exciting, innovative clinical trials for patients with brain tumors. This is a very productive and dynamic time for brain tumor research. As you probably know, the standard treatment for patients with gliomas is to first surgically remove them as completely as possible, followed by a six-week course of radiation, and then chemotherapy with a drug called Temidar. Despite this multimodal treatment, these tumors generally grow back at some point. And because of this tendency of these tumors to grow back, smarter and more effective experimental treatments are needed. And that's why the ASCO meetings are so important. They provide an outlet for investigators to discuss the novel treatments that are being developed in labs across the world and how these therapies translate to the treatment of patients with this difficult disease. Uh, <clears throat> as I mentioned, 
Gliomas often are resistant or eventually develop resistance to Temidar over time. A group from Norway has developed a strategy to address this by giving a drug called Balcade prior to Temidar. And this degrades a key protein that causes Temidar resistance in glioma. They're currently enrolling patients with recurrent glioblastoma uh, in a phase two clinical trial using this treatment strategy. And we're excited to hear about their preliminary results. Another group from Spain performed a large clinical trial that added a drug called Durismo in combination with Temidar, which is thought to directly target the Temidar-resistant cells. And they demonstrated very promising preliminary survival data. And uh, here everyone is, again, anxiously awaiting the final results, which hopefully will be in the near future. Um, Several other groups have worked to improve patient response to standard of care by adding novel targeted agents that are designed to exploit key weaknesses in the glioma cells. One trial from the Cleveland Clinic enrolled patients with high-grade gliomas and in combination with both radiation and temidar, they additionally gave a potent inhibitor something called STAT3, and this is a crucial signaling molecule involved in, in the uh, glioma growth, and it's associated with a poor prognosis. So by giving this inhibitor, um, hopefully they can target this, this uh, poor prognostic factor. Preliminary survival data is encouraging, and they're planning a phase two randomized trial. Another very exciting effort is coming from Dana-Farber, and it's designed to directly target the metabolism of tumor cells, specifically the production of cholesterol, which uh, interestingly is vital to rapidly dividing glioma cells. They, these glioma cells really depend on cholesterol. And this uh, drug has shown very great promise in animal studies, and so they're currently enrolling and treating patients as part of a first in human phase one clinical trial. So a lot of uh, um, enthusiasm for, for this trial moving forward. Probably the most exciting area in brain tumor research right now involves immunotherapy. Now, immunotherapies are treatments that use the patient's own immune system to help fight the tumor. To understand how immunotherapy works, think of when you get an infection, such as a virus or bacteria. What happens? Your body mounts a vigorous immune response to get rid of the infection. Well, a similar thing happens when patients have tumors. The immune response tries to get rid of the tumor cells because they're seen as foreign invaders like bacteria or viruses. However, the problem is that the immune system is generally not strong enough to overcome these rapidly growing tumor, and often the tumor itself will even suppress or block the body's immune response. So recent emphasis, including in the past several years at ASCO meetings, has been placed on developing ways to 
directly bolster the patient's own immune response against the brain tumor. And so one novel and exciting way to get the immune system to recognize uh, glioma tumor cells is through a cancer vaccine. This is similar to vaccines that protect us against common infections and cancer vaccines work by assisting our immune system to recognize proteins that are unique to tumor cells. And thus, they help orchestrate a highly specific anti-tumor immune response. The first such clinical trial I'd like to mention is a phase two trial out of Buffalo, New York, which used a tumor vaccine called Cervaxin. And this vaccine was directed against a protein that is uh, found in very high levels in the glioma. And they, using this vaccine then to treat the patients who have a newly diagnosed glioblastoma. And this trial um, showed that the treatment was safe, showed a significant clinical benefit, as well as shown a response in, uh, in the anti-tumor immune cells, suggesting that there is an anti-tumor immune response. So this is a uh, early study, uh, but, the, but the promising results will be expanded into uh, a uh, larger clinical trial. In a, a phase two study from Dana-Farber and Columbia, Patients with recurrent glioblastoma were given a vaccine made from a cytomegalovirus, which most people have had uh, infect, uh, cytomegalovirus infections uh, throughout their lifetime. This is a, causes a minor infection. Anyway, this vaccine made from this particular type of virus, patients were given one of two immune drugs to stimulate the immune system. And these combination therapies with the, both the vaccine and the drug were well tolerated, and several patients dis demonstrated significant clinical responses. So furthermore, in these studies, analyzing the blood of the patients showed that this therapy stimulated and maintained anti-tumor immunity. So they were effective at uh, um, stimulating a uh, anti-tumor immune response. And so a larger randomized clinical trial is currently underway. So similar to cancer vaccine therapies, several groups are currently investigating novel gene-based immunotherapies that aim to stimulate strong anti-glioma immune responses. So Dana-Farber currently has a phase two randomized clinical trial for a gene-based immunotherapy called VB111, and this has been shown to specifically uh, disrupt tumor blood vessels and direct the immune system, specifically T cells, which are important immune cells, uh, against gliomas. And we're very excited to see the preliminary results from this trial, which plans on enrolling uh, 45 patients with recurrent glioblastoma beginning this year. Um, there has also been recent emphasis on personalized medicine approaches in gliomas in order to select the best therapies for patients 
based on the genetic makeup of their tumors. One very exciting multi-institutional study randomized patients with recurrent glioblastoma to either a personalized treatment based on the genetic analysis of their tumor or a standard of care treatment selected by their physician. <clears throat> this study found that patients that got the personalized therapy had significantly better overall and progression-free survival. So these are exciting studies. They're encouraging as we understand that every patient's tumor is slightly different and that if we can exploit these differences, uh, every patient can potentially have a personalized therapeutic approach to their cancer care. Lastly, I want to finish up this update by telling you about some very interesting studies with novel approaches to make uh, earlier and less invasive diagnosis for patients with glioma. And this is something called liquid biopsies. Well, liquid biopsies are a method for diagnosing tumors through simply analyzing a patient's blood. It turns out that all tumors, not just brain tumors, release, release microscopic pieces of the tumor into the bloodstream. Uh, several groups, including one from the United Kingdom, have developed multi-cancer early detection tests that can detect glioma from patient blood with 90% sensitivity. Uh, another group demonstrated that small amounts of uh, genetic material called microRNAs can be detected in the blood to help distinguish between different types of brain tumors. So development of these new minimally invasive diagnostic procedures, although in its early stages, will be key in the development of glioma treatment as it will allow patients to be diagnosed and treated and monitored earlier and more effectively. Um, in closing, I want to advocate for participation in clinical trials at academic centers. <laughs> there are many groups of outstanding researchers who have put together thoughtful proposals to come up with new ideas. Working with these groups will lead to more promising treatments for all patients. It's an opportunity to help yourself as well as others. You'll, you will not be treated as a guinea pig, and on the contrary, you will get extra attention. Investigators are motivated to make sure their clinical trials are successful, so it's very important for them to make sure that you're satisfied and engaged in the trial's success. They usually have additional personnel working for them, so you'll find that your phone calls get returned much more reliably, so another benefit from clinical trials. Along these same lines, I want to conclude by recommending that all patients and families consider looking for brain tumor specialists when trying to find the best treatments. These specialists are often associated with academic medical centers where brain tumor teams work together to treat aggressive treatments and new treatments that may be helpful. Also, groups like cancer care are important because they provide support and information for patients who are looking for answers when faced with these challenging tumors. Um, you should know that there are some outstanding laboratories and researchers who are working with glioblastomas and are making headway with some very sophisticated and clever ideas. There's more optimism now for finding better improvement, better treatments, and for improving the quality of care than has ever been before. And with that, I'd like to thank you for your attention and turn the uh, podium back over to Dr. Messner. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Bruce. That was really outstanding, um, just really an outstanding presentation. And also, 
um, you know, your early call out for clinical trials and the and your sense of optimism now about so many of the newer treatments in, in uh, clinical trials and research um, and uh, in discovery about the treatment of brain tumors and glioblastomas. So thank you so much. And we look forward to um, further information that will come forth um, for ASCO 2023. Thank you very much, and perhaps even before then as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Dr. Bruce. And our next speaker is Dr. Candace Haddix. And Dr. Haddix is physician, medical oncologist, Sarcoma Center, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And Dr. Um, Haddix is going to present updates on the treatment of sarcoma presented ASCO, and she's also going to wrap up part one of highlights from ASCO 2022, having listened to all of the presentations and really um, identifying some common themes amongst all the speakers. So it's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Haddix. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner. It is really a privilege to join you and the other speakers to highlight some of the important advances in sarcomas from the 2022 ASCO annual meeting. This year, we were able to hear the latest results from research that we've been following for some time, and we also heard results from new studies. And I have to acknowledge that it will not be possible to capture all of the amazing work presented at this year's meeting, but I'll try to highlight a variety of studies for many diseases and many different types of treatment approaches, including chemotherapy, targeted therapies, immunotherapies, and efforts to understand how to choose the right treatment for the right patient at the right time. So I'd first like to start um, by reviewing one of the ASCO keynote presentations, which was on the RECUR study, and that's actually spelled R, capital E, capital E, capital C, lowercase u, lowercase r, for patients with recurrent or refractory Ewing sarcoma. This is actually the first randomized controlled trial that was conducted for patients in this setting, which is very notable. The trial design is pretty complex, and it was designed so that the data were analyzed periodically and the treatments being tested on study were adjusted based on each analysis. So, for example, the trial started out enrolling patients to receive four possible chemotherapy regimens, which were first combination topotecan with cyclophosphamide, second iranotecan with hemazolamide, third, gemcitabine with docetaxel, and then fourth, hydocyphosamide. And after two separate analyses, the gemcitabine and docetaxel arm and the irinotecan temozolamide arm were both closed since they were not performing as well as the other two arms. Um, this abstract presented at ASCO this year was one of the keynote presentations, and it highlighted the comparison of the remaining two arms, which again were cyclophosphamide and topotecan, and hydrocyphosamide. The analysis showed that ifosamide actually did slightly better than cyclophosamide with topotecan, so of the four, it's considered the, the optimal regimen to go with. However, I want to recognize that the difference between these regimens is not dramatic, and selecting a chemotherapy regimen is a complex decision that incorporates many factors. So it is still important to discuss all the nuances with your oncologist and your sarcoma specialist when choosing which option to go with. But the really noteworthy things to take away from this trial are one, that a large randomized and complex trial is possible in a rare disease like Ewing sarcoma. And number two, we now have some statistics on efficacy and side effects that we can 
discuss with our patients to help with making those tough decisions. And then number three, the results of this trial can be used to better develop additional trials for the future in, in Ewing sarcoma. So these are all really exciting takeaways. Um, the recur study will go on to open additional arms for more comparisons, and it will be exciting to see how this effort shapes the treatment of Ewing sarcoma going forward. Changing gears a bit, but staying on the topic of chemotherapy, we also heard an update, um, an updated analysis from an important trial that was conducted by the Italian, Spanish, French, and Polish sarcoma groups, and this evaluated the optimal chemotherapy regimen for patients with high-risk soft tissue sarcomas that could undergo surgery. So for a little bit of background, over time, we have found that different subtypes of sarcoma may respond to different chemotherapy regimens. And this trial randomly divided patients between a standard chemotherapy arm, which included epirubicin plus ifosamide, which is similar to doxorubicin plus ifosamide and mesna used here in the U.S., um, versus a chemotherapy regimen that was tailored specifically to the type of sarcoma that the patient had. So, for example, for patients with myxoid liposarcoma, epirubicin plus Ifosamide was compared to trabecidin, and at the conclusion of the study, epirubicin ifosamide appeared to be equivalent to trabecidin. So in order to be sure about this outcome, the trial allowed for an additional 101 patients with myxoid liposarcoma to enroll, um, and so this added 56 patients who received epirubicin ifosamide and 45 patients who received trabecidin. In the end, both treatments still had similar outcomes. But what we can conclude is that for patients with myxoid liposarcoma, both epirubicin ifosamide and trabecidin are reasonable options to consider for upfront um, treatment that requires chemotherapy. The third study that I'd like to highlight is one that was evaluating combination chemotherapy um, with targeted therapy uh, for patients with liposarcoma and leiomyosarcoma. So just to briefly set the stage, Aribulin is an IV chemotherapy that was previously studied in liposarcoma and leiomyosarcoma in a large clinical trial um, and now has approval in the U.S. for treatment of liposarcoma. Lenvatinib is an oral drug that, like pazopinib, which also has approval for soft tissue sarcomas except liposarcomas, can block cancer growth signals. So this study basically looked at combining these two drugs and evaluated two different doses. 30 patients received the treatment, 21 with leiomyosarcoma and 9 with, li with liposarcoma, and the combination showed promising activity in both tumor types, and the side effects observed were on par with what we see with both individual drugs. So the trial established the op optimal dose for the combination, and this could be moving forward in a larger study to confirm the efficacy. Next, I'd like to highlight two studies conducted in gastrointestinal stromal tumors, or GIST. Um, this is the most common subtype of soft tissue sarcoma in the GI tract, and for brief background, GIST and their behaviors are primarily driven by mutations or alterations in certain genes. The most common alterations that we see are in the KIT or PDGFRA genes, and this makes the tumors susceptible in most cases to approved drugs. Um, for patients with GIST who do not have a KIT or PDGFRA mutation in their tumors, which is probably less than 5% of cases, there are no standard therapies. And this is a space where we really need to develop novel treatments. So at ASCO, we heard from 
one study evaluating a novel drug called CS6157A, which is an interesting compound that has a chemotherapy drug linked to an antibody that works sort of like a homing device, delivering the drug to a marker on the tumor surface. And then the trial enrolled 34 patients. Um, overall, um, the treatment did not have much benefit for most patients, but interestingly, the four patients on the study who did not have the classic mutations um, actually had pretty impressive shrinkage of their tumors, which is really exciting, um, particularly since we do not have any standard therapies for these patients. So going forward, it will be important to understand how this drug works and further develop therapies that may be successful in rare subtypes of GIST um, where therapies are currently limited. The next study I'd like to highlight is also in gastrointestinal stromal tumors, exploring the concept of liquid biopsy, which we've heard from others on the call today. Um, and this is to predict response to treatment or evaluate the efficacy of treatment. So as you've heard already, liquid biopsies are also called circulating tumor DNA, and it's an attempt to detect strands of DNA that are released by the tumor into the bloodstream. And the blood test alone, therefore, can give us important information about the tumor. So since GIST have um, a predictable DNA alteration in most cases, um, we can hone in on these in the bloodstream. And one large randomized trial called the Voyager trial, which was published in 2021, um, actually collected information uh, from the patient's bloodstream through liquid biopsies, and that was presented at ASCO 2022. So from this study, we saw that most patients with GIST do have detectable levels of ctDNA in the bloodstream, and that there's clearly a link between the mutations we can detect in the bloodstream and the response to treatment. So we need to continue incorporating liquid biopsies into our GIST studies um, to understand how this technology, be, technology can be used in the clinic to improve our ability to treat patients but then we also need to develop methods for liquid biopsies and other subtypes of soft tissue sarcoma and bone sarcomas in order to understand whether this information would be helpful for us in selecting treatments or evaluating how well treatments are working for our patients. I have no doubt that we will continue to hear more about advances from this exciting avenue of research. Uh, last, I would like to discuss a couple of immunotherapy studies, um, which have been particularly exciting for the sarcoma community. Um, I'll start with, um, with saying that these therapies in general have revolutionized cancer care across many cancer types, and the sarcoma community is hard at work to understand how we can leverage these types of therapies for our patients. The first study presented a combination of two IV immunotherapies called nivolumab and ipilimumab compared to just nivolumab for patients who are about to undergo surgery, either with D-differentiated liposarcoma or undifferentiated pleomorphic sarcoma, also known as UPS. Some of the patients with UPS had radiation during immunotherapy treatment, and one exciting outcome of this study was presented at ASCO 2022, uh, which was exploring the immune features within the tumors that may predict response to treatment. And this is in line with other emerging studies showing that we may be close to identifying what tumor features predict response to immunotherapies, uh, which would be a, a very exciting advancement. The last studies that I'll present explore really innovative immune therapies um, called adoptive T-cell therapies. And these types of treatments are developed for each individual patient by genetically 
modifying or engineering the patient's own immune cells called T cells to recognize a marker on the tumor surface called NYESO1. In order for this treatment to be effective, the tumor has to have the NYESO1 marker and the white blood cells have to have a specific HLA type, which is something that each of us inherits from our parents. A previous study used the engineered T-cell approach called Letty cell to treat patients with synovial sarcoma, and this showed exciting results. So now, since we know that about 80% of myxoid liposarcomas also have the NYESO1 marker, this trial was developed to test Letty cell in patients with recurrent or metastatic myxoid liposarcoma that are also positive for NYESO1. So before the engineered immune cells can be given, high doses of chemotherapy are administered. And one thing that this trial investigated was looking at the two different chemotherapy doses and trying to optimize that. So patients receive either a reduced dose or a standard dose of chemotherapy and then have the Letty cell infusion. Um, The study found that the side effects um, basically that are commonly seen with the chemotherapy regimens and other engineered T-cell therapies were also seen. Um, but exciting uh, to see also that six out of 20 patients had a significant shrinkage of their tumor. So I will conclude there for the sarcoma highlights from the ASCO meeting. Um, For this portion, I want to thank the organizers of this important event and all the patients and loved ones who have been part of the trials that I highlighted here today. Um, And for all of you, um, to all of you for tuning in. Thank you for your interest in improving the lives of patients with sarcoma, and I hope it is clear that we in the sarcoma community, both the experts and the patients, are working hard to improve therapies and develop new treatments. I encourage all patients, as others have done today, um, to listen, uh, that are listening to discuss treatment options with their oncologist and consider clinical trials that may be a good fit for you. Um, And with that, I will move on to the wrap-up section in which I've kind of taken out some of the themes from all the individual presenters today. So um, first I'll say that there's no doubt that the 2022 ASCO annual meeting showcased truly groundbreaking research. And I hope you have found it helpful to hear about the updates across many cancer types, both from myself and also the all-star cast on today's call. Um, I would like to highlight a few themes from the speakers today, and I broke this down into three that I picked out. First of all, refining and extending the use of our cutting-edge therapies. Second, cutting across silos. And third, individualizing therapies. So going back to theme one, which is refining and extending the use of our cutting-edge therapies, I think it's clear that across oncology, there are really exciting and novel treatments that are, that are coming down the pipeline, um, and these are really truly innovative therapies. So we heard today from immunotherapies being developed, antibody drug conjugates, targeted therapies, nuclear medicine treatments, and refining the use of even traditional therapies like chemotherapy. So we heard from Dr. Hussein that Based on the Destiny Breast 04 trial, trastuzumab direct can not only works in breast cancers with high levels of the marker HER2, but is also effective in patients with low levels of HER2, which allows breast oncologists to extend um, the potential impact of that drug beyond just the HER2 high-expressing tumors. 
Dr. Hussein also discussed whether radiation therapy is even necessary for patients with early-stage hormone receptor-positive breast cancer. And I found it quite striking that we could potentially spare 30 to 40,000 patients of radiation treatments each year. So it's very important that we not only explore the more novel treatments, but that we also go back to our more traditional therapies that we have in our toolkit and, and make sure that that the treatments are still benefiting our patients. And then as a third example, um, I discussed the RECUR study, um, which explored traditional chemotherapy and Ewing sarcoma and really tried to dissect which therapy regimen had the most um, benefit upfront for patients. Moving on to theme two, which was cutting across silos. I would say this is a theme from ASCO in general. One of the wonderful things about meeting in person this year was the ability to have spontaneous conversations outside of our silos with, with other um, experts from other disease groups instead of saying within our own disease groups and really learning from each other. And for me, this workshop too is really uh, an example of that. So some examples from this call um, were, for example, Dr. Slavin discussed that the PSMA lutetian therapy outcomes are improved when the PET scan avidity is greater than 10. And I was, I was just thinking that as these nuclear medicine therapies are being developed in many cancer types, we can all learn from that lesson um, and apply that to, to other um, nuclear medicine-based therapies that are being developed. And then, as you heard, Dr. Bruce also touched on several exciting efforts to develop cancer vaccines and gene-based immune therapies for gliomas and no doubt that will have also implications for other diseases as we learn from, from the advancements in the, um, in the central nervous system tumors. And similarly, going back to the Destiny Breast 04 study that Dr. Hussein discussed, um, which showed that the antibody drug conjugate trastuzumab directed to CAN is effective with low doses of HER2, I'm sure as we, that we were all listening to this data with great interest um, as antibody drug conjugates are being developed for many different subtypes of, of cancer. Um, and now we can start to question whether we really need high expression of the, the targets that those drugs are designed against or whether low expression levels would be adequate. And that would ultimately extend um, the impact of our drugs um, and the reach of our drugs. And moving on to the last theme for today, individualizing therapy, really identifying the right treatment for the right patient at the right time. I think it's clear several speakers touched on this. Um, I discussed that liquid biopsies or CTDNA may help us predict the right therapy for patients with GIF. Dr. Runowitz discussed that ARID1A may be an important bio biomarker for predicting um, benefit to treatment for ovarian cancer. Dr. Bruce also touched on individualizing therapies for brain cancer and that that is actually shown to be um, a more advantageous approach for our patients. And then Dr. Hussein and Dr. Slavin both nicely highlighted the issue of health disparities in cancer care. And in order for us to develop treatment for all patients, it's critical that we recruit patients from all backgrounds. And a big part of being successful at this will be from establishing trust and identifying resources or eliminating barriers for patients, and then, of course, partnering with our colleagues in underrepresented communities to really extend the reach of our trials and our exciting research. 
So I'll leave you with all of these themes to ponder. I sincerely thank you for your attention and the opportunity to be part of this event, and I hope that you found the workshop uh, helpful. So I'll take it back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Haddix. That was really a superb presentation. Um, the way you um, presented, first of all, on Sarcoma, but also the way in which you actually summarized the call today, giving our participants so much information about the um, the commonalities that um, you know many of our um, many of these different treatments pose for the future in terms of what's working in one area could very easily work in another. And so I just can't thank you enough for that outstanding wrap-up. I want to thank all of our speakers. They've been outstanding today. I want to thank all of you who've chosen to listen to today's program. And I also recognize that we um, do not, did not have time for questions on today's program, but I do know that many of you have questions. And I hope that you will take your questions back to your treating healthcare team. They know you the best. They have the, your records. And it's really important that you discuss what you've learned today with your healthcare team. There are things that you may um, learn that could be very, very useful um, in terms of this, in terms of your own treatment. Um, and so, and you, as you think of questions as you go along, as you meet with your physicians, your healthcare team, it's really important to um, ask your questions and ask them as often as you need to. Also, please do take advantage of the services of Cancer Care. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization, and you can access our services um, by contacting our um, helpline, 1-800-813-4673, or visiting our website at www.cancercare.org. We um, are national in scope, and we also um, address issues of all different types of cancers. Um, we have um, oncology social workers, about 45 of them. They will answer the phone when you, one of them will answer the phone when you call us, or we'll address your question when you post it um, on our website. And also for our global participants as well, you can actually post your question on our website and our staff will of course follow up with you. Again, I wanna thank you all very much for your participation today and I wanna wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.